All right, Dan, we are ready uh, to continue this series on the future. Do you know one day all of us, every human, uh, will uh, be uh, positioned in eternity? Everyone will find their eternal state. But before that happens, all of these major peaks uh, in God's prophetic mountain range, as we've been discussing, have to be fulfilled. And the next one is this rather grand and glorious event uh, of the rapture. This involves Christians, the church in particular. Uh, the Lord descends from heaven, we read, and he meets us in the air. He catches us up. That's what the word means, because some of us, frankly, will be unwilling. We have gotten so comfortable here. Uh, he will actually snatch us out of the world situation, and then we will be with the Lord forevermore. And in my opinion, as we mentioned, this could happen in any moment, which is the imminent return of Christ. No other key prophetic events need to take place before the rapture. Therefore, we are to be ready. And then subsequent to it at some time is this, the judgment seat of Christ. This one concerns only Christians. This is not with respect to salvation. This is with respect to service. So here is the dissemination of rewards with regard to how we conducted ourselves in the body. How would how did we make use of the resources entrusted to us? Our time, our gifts, and all the rest. This is the judgment seat of Christ. Don't worry about it. Your salvation, if you're in Christ, is assured. So don't confuse this one which with this other judgment time called the... Uh, Great white throne judgment. This does not involve believers. This involves only those who have rejected the pardon offered by Christ. This is not with respect to rewards. This is with respect to uh, the rejection of Christ. So uh, there's no possibility of pardon at the great white throne judgment. It's too late then. It's just a sentencing to one's eternal state apart from Christ forevermore. And then after this, we spoke about this uh, terrible character, the Antichrist, who's just what his name implies, the, the, the antithesis of who the real Christ is. The real Christ came to deliver. This one will come to destroy, but he won't look that way initially. He's a rather attractive personage, and he makes all kinds of offers. Now, you'll know who he is. Uh, because one of the ways in which his public persona will be made most known is that he will somehow arrange a peace treaty with Israel and her Middle Eastern neighbors. And of course, everyone will say this is rather marvelous because nobody hitherto have been able, has been able to bring the warring entities in the Middle East together. And that will really, really look good and people will applaud him and rally behind him. But about three and a half years after the signing of this peace treaty, uh, he will break his word, he'll violate it, and require that he himself be worshipped in the reconstructed temple in Jerusalem. Of course, this ought to be no surprise, because as Antichrist, he wants the worship due the real Christ. Now, I know a lot of people try to discern the identity of the Antichrist. We spoke about it. In my opinion, if you could identify him uh, with accuracy... 
uh, you're in trouble because I don't think his identity is going to be clearly made known to us until the time known as this great tribulation. And once again, I told you, I don't think we're going to be there. And so I think before this happens is the rapture of the church. And so we're gone at this point because this point, this period of time is characterized by the outpouring of God's wrath. But don't you see, that's what you've been saved from if you're in Christ because the Father poured out his wrath, the wrath due us on his own son. Remember when the Lord Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, that was the outpouring of God's wrath on his only begotten son and therefore it won't be on his other sons and daughters who've accepted Christ as substitute. So at the end of this seven-year tribulation period, it ends with the second coming of Christ and nobody else, no other force on earth could bring it to an end. And there's this horrible final war of Armageddon, I have to tell you. Uh, it would be such destruction that no one would survive but this very clear, dramatic second coming of the Lord Jesus will put it to an end at which time he will usher in this millennium, uh, meaning 1,000 years of the establishment of of his kingdom on earth. It's the time the Bible says when so many things will be reversed, even in the natural order. And so it says the lion will lie down with the lamb. You know that? So, so, so uh, uh, hitherto there's been a kind of a predator and prey relationship, even in the animal kingdom. But during the millennial period, even that kind of animosity will be uh, reversed. And then sometime at the end of the millennium is this white, great white throne judgment. Great, because of he who sits on the throne. White, a symbol of purity, unmixed, righteous, uncorrupted judgment. And it's a throne. It's the place of ultimate authority. And at the white throne judgment, those who have refused Christ's pardon will receive really what they have asked for, and that is estrangement from God. But in this case, eternal estrangement. And so that'll be the eternal state of those who have rejected Christ. That's called hell. And we spoke about it last week. Well, that's a very, very distasteful subject, and as a result, in most cases, people don't want to talk about it, but it's a reality for sure. Uh, we spoke about how could it be that a loving God would ever do something like this, and I tried to make the point that he didn't. People have put themselves in this eternal state of estrangement uh, from God, who's done everything he possibly could to provide a way out. Now, for those who've accepted the pardon of Christ, for those who realize, my heavens, they have an inherent and inherited sin problem for which they need outside help, and for those who have determined that that outside help is none other than the enfleshed deity himself, God the Son, who suffered and died as a sin substitute for us, and then who rose up from it all uh, to lay to rest the last enemy death, and who ascended so as to be at the right hand of the Father. So those who have put such confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, the redeemed, uh, well, their eternal state is not the horrific hell which we spoke about, no. Their eternal state is much different. It is called heaven. 
and it is heaven, which we will speak about a bit tonight, a little more next week, because I just want us to enjoy thinking about it. I just want us to bask in the sunlight and in the reality of our eternal destination if we allow the Lord Jesus to open the door to it for us. So you could only get there on his merits. Heaven, heaven, heaven. Folks, one day the entire creation order will be made new, fit for eternity. When God created it all, he stood back from his masterpiece, you recall, and as if he was evaluating his work of art, the creation order, he said, Tov ma'od, it is good to the max. It is very good. But it is not very good anymore because we came on board and messed it up. We corrupted it. If you're looking for the cause of environmental pollution, get a mirror. We stunk it up. We messed it up. It is not global warming. By the way, tonight is some good evidence against global warming. I'm shivering. You know what I mean? I could use a little global warming for crying out loud. Folks, we corrupted it. And God in that day, this future day, he will not renovate what we have messed up. Oh, no. He will replace it entirely. And see, just as initially uh, the universe was formless and void, not a fit habitat for the crown of God's creation, people made in his own image. And just as he formed it and filled it and we messed it up, so in that day he will form and fill a new reality, uh, which is a fit habitat for us eternally. In other words, paradise lost will in that day be paradise regained. Folks, it's heavenly. It is called heaven. In that day, the Savior will remove not only the effects of sin on us, but also the effects of sin on the environment. And you know what it'll be like? Well, it'll be, it'll be like heaven. And we could read all about it. Let's do so. Revelation chapter 21. Just a fairly uh, brief excursion through the vision given the Apostle John about heaven. Revelation 21 verse 1. Look, then I, and the I is John. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You see? Not a remodeled and renovated one. Oh, no, no, no. Entirely new heaven and new earth. Why? Well, you see, because the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And isn't this interesting? There is no longer any sea. Why not? Uh, do you know today three-fourths of the globe is... Uh, covered by water. Water divides nations. Uh, in the day in which John wrote, uh, the seas had a very mysterious quality to them. Uh, the ancients uh, saw the sea to be a source of evil and great mystery. John himself, when he was writing this, do you know where he was? 
He was on an island surrounded by water, which divided, separated him from family and friends. He was on an island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. He was exiled uh, for his devotion to Christ. And so as he's writing this, uh, the sea was not an attractive thing for him. It's what separated him. But in that day, no, there'll no longer be any sea. And then it says in verse 2, and I saw the holy city. Now, just in case you're not sure what the holy city is, just in case you think it's Houston. Uh, look, it is just, this is not, you don't have to interpret. Look, and I saw the holy city. It is new Jerusalem coming down. It has to come down. It's so good. It can't come from human efforts. Nobody could make the unholy old Jerusalem into the holy new Jerusalem. In spite of the best efforts of man, we've messed up everything. Every good thing comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So this is such a grand place. It has to come down from above, out of heaven, from God. And it says it's made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So notice this. Old Jerusalem is the beloved city. New Jerusalem is the holy city. In the Bible, old Jerusalem is referred to as the beloved city. God has an investment in it down to this very day. But in that day... New Jerusalem will take on a different kind of a character and she will be referred to as the holy city. Over 3,000 years ago, King David, we call him David HaMelech, David the king, established Yerushalayim, uh, Jerusalem, as the capital of ancient Israel. And in 3,000 years, it's not been a holy place. It's been a religious place for sure. And if you go there today, every manner and shade of religion is there. I mean, if you're interested in religion, you could get religious overload in a short visit to Jerusalem. Every brand and stripe of religious endeavor, you can, but not a whole, a religious quality, but in 3,000 years, not a holy quality. But the heavenly city coming down from above New Jerusalem, uh, will have this character of holiness. In other words, Jerusalem then will be the city it was meant to be. And John tells us that New Jerusalem is as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, I love this image. Uh, you know, a couple, uh, they're in love and they're planning on getting married and there's so much a preparation in advance of this wonderful day where they exchange vows and consummate their relationship. And the bride in particular is getting herself ready and picking out colors and hairstyles and trying on just all kinds of gowns and thinking through the whole thing. And the guy is really trying to be interested, but he just can't decide whether he wants red or green napkins and all. He doesn't get it. But the bride... And don't you see that particular image while we are preparing to meet our Lord? 
our Lord is preparing our eternal habitat. In other places in the Bible, we are referred to as the bride of Christ. But in this case, the very city, the capital of heaven, New Jerusalem, is referred to as the bride. I feel like crying out, don't you? Tell us more, John. And he does. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Hey, take a look at that verse. Uh, Count up the number of times the word among is in that one verse. See how many times. Among. How many times? Three times. Well, God doesn't waste words. If a word uh, is repeated three times in one verse, it's a sig- I love the word among. Let's face facts. Though we be followers of Christ, redeemed ones, his people, the bride of Christ, loving him, loved by him, let's face it. Sometimes the hardships of life persuade us he's afar off. And sometimes it's a little hard to connect and access him. Sometimes. But I love, therefore, the word among. One of, in heaven, there won't be the sense at any time of distance and separation. We won't ever, ever, even at the peak of emotion, imagine that the Lord has distanced himself. Oh, no. Among, the tabernacle of God will be among men. He will dwell among them. And God himself will be among them. Folks, uh, Don't wonder any more than this about what heaven is like. It's easy. Heaven is where Jesus is. Heaven is where we will be. Heaven is where we will be with Jesus forever. There you have it. Emmanuel soon will sing, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. He is going to come. A second time. And we're going to go. We're going to come to be with him. Emmanuel. Not God distant from us, even at the peak of a broken heart? No, Emmanuel, God with us. Unbroken, eternal, heavenly communion with the Lord Jesus. That's joy. That's joy, the likes of which we haven't experienced. In other words, no more tears. Do you know what that's like? No, you don't. No, Look, folks. Revelation 21, verse 4. And he... Who's the he? Yeah. He will wipe... Can you imagine? Our Father, Heavenly Father, will be our consoler. It's as if he will come to us and very personally wipe away our tears. Oh, man. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. Can you relate to that reality? No, you can't. Because death has come to be part of the human condition. It wasn't exactly God's plan. And so he did what he could to warn man against bringing death upon himself as a consequence. Do you remember? 
Here's paradise. Here's the garden in which all of your needs will be met. We'll have close communion. You could stand naked before one another, transparent. There's nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. However, one thing. Don't eat from the fruit of that tree because in the day that you do it, you'll surely die. So then Satan comes on the scene. That's in Genesis 2. In Genesis 3, Satan comes on the scene and says, hey, did God say this, that, and the other thing? No, you're not going to die. He said that in Genesis, Genesis 3. In Genesis 5, we read about people dying. So who tells the truth and who lies? Anytime you go past a cemetery or pay your respects at a funeral parlor, please conclude God tells the truth and Satan is the father of lies. We die. And it has caused untold pain. But in that day, there will no longer be any death. Folks, it's heaven. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things, the things of this earth, the things that characterize all of this will have passed away. Look, life here is good, but life here makes you cry. Let's just be honest. It hurts to be alive. I didn't say it isn't a blessing. Please don't write me emails. I know it's a blessing. I understand that. But it hurts to live life. We cry. There just are many sources of pain, and I know some of them are self-induced and produced, but others are not. You know, there's disease here, there are accidents here, there's war here, there's all kinds of stuff. There are tornadoes here and hurricanes here. And I know life is a blessing, and I'm not blaming God for any of that, but it hurts and we cry. But not in that day. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. <clears throat> now skip with me, just for the sake of time, some verses. Let's get some more information about New Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. It, New Jerusalem, had a great and high wall with, hmm, 12 gates. Not 11 gates. Not 13 gates. Why 12? Arbitrary? Let's see. Twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels, and names were written on them. What names? Bob, George, Harry? No. Twelve names, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. And now I know why there are twelve gates, because there are twelve tribes. So much for those who say God has replaced Israel and no longer has a plan for them. Well, somehow they're still hanging around in the heavenly city. In fact, the names of each of the tribes is inscribed on the very gates of the heavenly city. Let's not make God unfaithful just because his covenant people are unfaithful. I mean, the Bible tells us, though, we be unfaithful. He is faithful. If God doesn't fulfill his promises to Believing Israel, then why do you think he'll fulfill them to you? As I so often say, the church isn't better than Israel. <laughs> the church has blown it over the millennia as well. But it isn't about Israel. It isn't about the church. It's about the grace of God, which is greater than all our sin, including Israel's. And so there are the names of the 12 tribes inscribed on the gates of New Jerusalem forever. And 
If this is such a great place and such a heavenly city, I bet you're wondering, why is there the presence, therefore, of a great and high wall? So usually we think of walls as um, things that either keep people in or keep people out. But you shouldn't think of these walls that way. You should think of these walls as an indication of security. The people of God in heaven will be forever secure, forever apart from any dangers and threats. It's all over. There's a great and high wall. And there's more. Look at verse 16. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he me- It's an angel. And he measured the city with the rod, Here's what he came up with, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. This is an immense city. Uh, Just to uh, give you an idea, the distance from Houston to New York is 1,500 miles. Uh, The total base area uh, of the heavenly city is 1,000,000. 750,329 square miles. Yeah, you won't be crowded. There'll be plenty of room. And notice it is a perfect cube. Why? It's the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament foreshadowing. The Holy of Holies. Do you recall? It too was a perfect cube. But this habitat is different than the Old Testament Holy of Holies for this reason. The Holy of Holies in Old Jerusalem was very restrictive. The only one who could enter it and have access to God was the high priest. And he only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Nobody else could go in. You know how it was. He goes into the Holy of Holies, and he's got a rope tied around his ankles. And at the hem of his garment are little bells and stuff. So the people outside can hear him walking around. As long as they hear the bells, they have reason to believe his intercessory work on their behalf is of being acceptable to God. But if they stop hearing the bells, they oh, no. God killed him, and therefore his offering for our sin is not acceptable to God. But they couldn't go in there, hence the rope. They'd have to pull him out. Very restricted access to the presence of God. But in New Jerusalem, the tabernacle of God will dwell among us. He himself will be among us. There won't be restricted access. Not just the high priest has access to God. Why? Because we are believer priests, don't you see? And so we'll be able, figuratively speaking, not literally, but figuratively speaking, to climb up on his lap. Wow. That place is far better than the holy of holies. Let me just, as we draw to a little close here, let me just read uh, some more about the holy city. I try not to comment on it. I just want to see if... You mean, just take this in. Do, do you know, do you like jewels and gems and this kind of stuff? I don't know hardly anything about them, except they, I mean, they look pretty good, huh? Jewels and gems. I mean, everyone likes them. They're tr- look at 
The material of the wall was jasper. And the city was pure gold. Silver's too cheap for New Jerusalem. Pure gold like clear glass. Is it literally clear glass? No, like clear. Why, why this vocabulary? Like clear. Because there aren't human words to capture the unfathomable riches and beauty of the holy city, New Jerusalem. So it's, it's like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The eleventh, jacinth. The twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Can you imagine that? No, you can't. And neither can I. It's out of this world. It's heaven. It's very difficult to be here, I find. It is for me. I'm unashamed of it because it is for you. We're all chickens in this coop. We're not comfortable here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're distressed by so many things. We're subject to the throes of life. We grieve over loss just like anyone. But we do not grieve as those who are without hope. My fellow followers of Christ Jesus, be hopeful for momentary light affliction. I have a hard time even saying that. Because it doesn't seem momentary when you're afflicted. It's not me. It's God's perspective. From the perspective of eternity in heaven, anything we experience here, no matter how severe and weighty, is momentary light affliction. So my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, ones who have freely received a pardon by His grace through faith alone in the shed blood of Christ alone. Be hopeful because the best is yet to come. <laughs> 